Hi, I'm Homer Hargrove and I'm the pastor of Grave Top Church. I hope that today's message inspires you and that connecting with our church family today truly makes a difference in your life. Enjoy the message. All right, guys, welcome to Grave Top Church Online. I'm your host, Homer Hargrove, and uh, sorry we're starting a little bit late today. Things were um, a little crazy in our transitions from the recovery center to putting kids down, but here we are. And today uh, we are continuing our series about Be the Church, and I'm just going to jump right into it. Be the Church. We've been going through this whole series um, this month about how we can actively and practically be the church as a body of Christ. And... Uh, Today, we're going to be talking about having a biblical backbone, having a biblical backbone. And I want to read uh, this verse in Hosea chapter 4, verse 6. It says, my people are destroyed for the lack of knowledge. And since you have re rejected knowledge, I also will reject you from bring, being my high priest. Since you have forgotten the law of your God, I will also forget your children. Pretty harsh, right? This is God speaking to the priest. <laughs> the high priest of Israel at the time. And this is the reason that this is such um, a, a, a severe thing is God is talking to the priest saying, you've deprived my people of knowledge. And because of the lack of knowledge, my people perish. You know, when we look at throughout history, every time there is some type of uh, wicked leadership or a, a type of governing body that wants to control people, we see throughout history that they restrict the access of knowledge. That it, it, it's just even uh, this known thing that for the lack of knowledge, people will perish. If they do not know the truth, they will not be able to be set free. And we can, uh, I could pick and pull from so many points of history where we see just a simple lack of knowledge cause people to be enslaved, to be held captive, to not be able to have the empowerment they needed to have uh, uh, empowered lives or free lives. And I want to relate it to the Christian church. I want to zero in on the Christian church because there's, there's a lot of different statistics, but one uh, I've seen over the years is that only 11% of Christians read the Bible. That's a very alarming statistic because that means 89%, if that is accurate, that would mean 89% of Christians just take the pastor's word for it. They just take the preacher's word. Well, he, he must be the expert. When we have this amazing book that's available and ready for us to use, that we it's the most, it's the most uh, downloaded book. It's the most uh, purchased book in the entire world. It's the most uh, accessible book in the entire world. You can download it on your phone and need any translation, any language. It is so accessible, yet we do not read it. We just trust other people to convey the message for us. The Bible is not just this, this list of do's and don'ts. It is compiled of, of different genres and topics. That it is just so much that we are able to acquire in every scripture. All scripture is inspired by God and is useful to equip and prepare us to do every good work. We, we need scripture in our lives to, to be able to be empowered. It is a useful tool now be not mistaken if there was never a, a scripture written christianity would still exist because christianity was a moment in history it happened there's plenty of uh, secular archaeological findings historical records of jesus's life and and the fact that he died on the cross and rose from the dead that does not change we would still be christians today but the fact that we have scripture makes it that much more uh, resourceful and useful for us in our lives and my heart today is for us to grasp how important it is to have a biblical backbone because over the years the majority of people that i've seen hurt by church a lot of people that i've seen hurt by church a lot of it was from toxic culture toxic leadership but also a lot of it could have been avoided if certain if people would have a, a a better knowledge of their beliefs or their faith. There's so often that we we are guided or even led astray through pieces of scripture rather than the whole scripture to where people who are even offended at God 
are offended at God for the wrong reasons because what they're holding him to are not even biblical standpoints. And I'll make more sense of that later. Uh, I'll, I'll start by this. I remember a moment that I was, uh, one of the first moments I started to question what I was being taught. And, and early on in my faith, I was not raised in church, but early on in my faith, I went to a, a ministry school, very legalistic that, that uh, conveyed, if you disagree with leadership, if, if you don't listen to leadership, then you're in open spiritual rebellion against God's authority and you need to repent. It's just like diabolical to question a leader. And I remember a moment in which I heard something said and I just knew that that was not biblical. And there's a moment where I heard this preacher that was doing a great offering call. And he was from the stage, he was saying that the moment that Jesus is saying, uh, get behind me, I never knew you. And the people cried, but we, but we did uh, this in your name. We knew this in the name. And he said, I, uh, I tell you the truth, I never knew you. And he said, this preacher using scripture to try to prove what he's saying, said that God is, uh, Jesus is talking about those who didn't tithe. Now, I thought that was such a stretch, that was such a leap from what scripture was saying to suggest something. It, it was just, I, I felt like it was just, it was not biblical. It was not biblical. It did not have scriptural ground, scripture grounding. And yet people heard that were like gasped, like, oh, I had no idea. I better be coerced into tithing so that I am not rejected out of heaven because now I realize that it's not by faith I believe in Jesus, but it's by my tithe that I believe in Jesus. See, it, it's just, it's attributing that my salvation is based off of work. Should we tithe? Yes. I think it's a great discipline and sacrament of our faith. I think that tithing is a great practice, but to say that your salvation is dependent on it, I don't believe that's biblical. And so many people would hear something like that. And then months later, years later, realize that they feel they just have a moment of realization that they were manipulated and rather than looking at the the preacher the teacher the person the man that 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 misused scripture they look at god or the entire church and now they cannot find their within themselves to go back to church because of how they were manipulated this one time well if you would have a biblical grounding in yourself by reading scripture you would be able to know at first glance, well, that's not right. And it, it would save so much heartache, so much pain by simply having the knowledge of truth. Uh, I'll put it like this. Think, think about how we, we often think, well, I, I won't be duped. I won't be tricked. I can't be manipulated. I'm, I'm too smart for that. Think about the last toxic relationship you were in. <laughs> were, you, were you tricked then? And see, we... At the end of the day, you just don't know what you don't know. And if we could go back in time to tell our previous selves not to do something, it, this is our chance is by simply having the knowledge. If we knew what we knew now, we knew it back then, we would have saved ourselves so much heartache, so many so much wasted time. The same goes for church hurt and, 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 and offense of God. If we have knowledge, it empowers us. So now let me get into the first point. The first point is called, let me check. Let me check. Let me check to see if that's in the Bible. Let me check. Christians who are easily manipulated are often biblically illiterate, meaning that people who don't read the Bible can be easily manipulated into something. Look at what happens in Matthew chapter 4, verse 1 through 4. It says, then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted there by the devil. And for 40 days and 40 nights, he fasted and became very hungry. During that time, the devil came and said to him, if you are the son of God, tell these stones to become loaves of bread. But Jesus told him, no, the scriptures say people do not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Now, this, this temptation is not to just simply eat bread. It's not a sin to eat bread. But it's the fact that Jesus had dedicated to fast for these 40 days. And the devil was trying to tempt him to break his dedication, to give in to his fleshly desires. And that's what it was. And what did Jesus use to defend himself? The word of God. He used scripture to defend himself. And three times we see Jesus tempted by the devil in this, in this passage. 
And the devil gets more crafty. He even picks certain scriptures to try to convince Jesus to do something that's wrong. He, the devil used scripture and attempt to manipulate Jesus into doing something that was not right. How did Jesus overcome the manipulation? Through the full scripture, by putting the, the scripture out of context back into context. It was only by, if Jesus used scripture as this tool to, to defend himself, should it not be an example for us to follow, a guide for us? We would be able to save ourselves from so much heartache, so much church hurt, so much manipulation if we were to take the word of God seriously to, for ourselves. If we were to take ownership, to, we must understand that we need the whole picture to be able to understand God's word. It, even uh, Let me put it this way. There's, if we were to read scripture in a, in a deep context, if we were to go a, a little bit deeper with it and see that there's so much to the Bible, we, we've been taught in our culture to just take little pretty verses and just take verse by verse, memorize a verse and, and keep it as your little promise. And don't get me wrong, we can take verses of scripture and then just be our, our banner, our flag to where we just love this verse. That's, there's nothing wrong with that. And you can even take a promise in scripture and pray for that to be applicable to you. There's nothing wrong with that. But I want us to understand that if we were to take a glimpse at scripture and to read it the way it was intended, read scripture the way it was intended, that alone will empower you to be able to understand what the Bible is saying. For example, to read this, the Bible, read the Bible in the way that it was intended. Look at the book of Psalms. That is a poetic book. It should be read and received as a poetic book. There's, there's Psalms in there where David is just pouring out his emotion and his heart in a very poetic way. And he'll, he'll say something like, God, kill my enemies. <laughs> And kill kill their children too. And see, it's not that is not a guide for us. That is not a, a, a that is not showing God's heart. That is showing David's heart. He's being transparent, even with the ugly parts of himself. He's being transparent with God. We could use that method of being transparent, but to we see in Scripture that God tells us to love our enemies, to turn the other cheek. So see, that's that is a poetic book meant to be received in a poetic way. In the books of history, it, when David sleeps with Bathsheba and kills her husband to try to cover up the pregnancy, that is not a guide for us, or that is not the Bible saying this is the right way to behave. It is an illumination of raw history showing a, a real thing that happened, as simple as that. So it should be read in a historical way. When God gives promises to people like Abraham and David and, and, and Solomon, etc., we should read those as promises given to these these specific people. You cannot necessarily just grab a promise that was intended for someone else and say, oh, that's mine, and then hold God to that promise as if he's obligated to give it to you. It, it is Again, you can take a promise and pray for God to, to bless that over you, but you cannot hold God to scripture that was not intended in that way. I hope that makes sense. We must read the Bible as it was written. Not every part of scripture is a command. There is parts that are commands, but not every part is command. A great example is when Jesus is speaking in hyperboles, like in the moments, like Matthew chapter 5, I believe, is when Jesus says, if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. If your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. He's speaking in a hyperbole way. If we were to take it as a literal way, in the way that it was not intended for, to, for us to be taken, then we would all be maimed and blind. But it, was, it, it must be read and received in the way that it was intended. Now, I want to give a, a, a method that will help you in your own personal devotion of reading the Bible. I, I really want you, by the end of this, to feel inspired to read the Bible yourself and, and to have a personal connection to the scriptures that you read. And so this little method is a, is a way to study scripture, just simple on your own. And it's called an inductive Bible study, your own inductive Bible study. And all it's just consists of three parts. It's observation, interpretation, and application. If you've ever seen one of those life application study Bibles, all that is, is some pastor 
that went through scripture and did this method. He just observed, interpreted it, and saw how it could apply to your life. You can do this yourself in reading scripture. See, observation is just taking notice and asking, what is this passage saying? What is it saying? Just really critically thinking for a moment. And then interpretation, ask, what does it mean? What does it say? Step one. Step two, what does it mean? And then step three, what is it instructing? What is it instructing for me to do? Is it instructing me to do something? How can I apply it to my life? And see, I, I, back in the day, I would just have a little composition book, 90 cents at the, at the store. And I would just write the scripture. If it was too long of a scripture, I'd write the, the, the reference. And then I would, just, I would just jot these down. I'd observe, interpret, and, and how it can apply. It's a simple way to study the Bible on your own. Again, that's observation, interpretation, and application. Just do that, and you'll go so much deeper in, in your word. Now, I want to give you these tools against confusion. I have a lot of people ask uh, ideas about what is the false teaching, what is a, a, a false prophecy, a false teachers, false prophets. And, and I want us to understand that a false teaching is simply a teaching that is not biblically accurate but claims to be. False teaching is this is a teaching that's not biblically accurate but claims to be. And there's and now false prophets are people who claim to be speaking on behalf of God, but are not. They're only speaking by their own thoughts, or they could even be demonically led. A good reference to understanding false teachings and false prophets is in 1 John chapter 4, verse 1 through 6. It gives a great and simple direction to determine whether something should be openly received or not. Now, again, I'm sharing this so that we can be equipped so that we can be equipped whenever we're listening to something. And our, and our world right now is the most, is just information is so widely available and it's easy to just listen to whatever is out there. You could just scroll through Instagram or TikTok, whatever, and find something that is promoting a message. When you are doing that, I, I warn you to just have critical thinking moment. Do not just accept that what anyone says is true. There's some some just completely outrageous and ludicrous things that are taught, and people are like, oh, I didn't know that, and they just follow it because they do not have knowledge as power of what the scriptures say. So here's here's a couple of things that will help you just to get started. So to determine, to help you in those confusing moments, like is this right or is it wrong, it, here's some uh, four things that will help you. One, if it takes any glory away from Jesus at all, it is not of the Holy Spirit. If it takes any glory away from Jesus at all, it is not from the Holy Spirit. I feel like this is one of the simplest ways to understand if something is, is, is true or false, if something is biblical or not. It's like a safe haven. Like the example I used earlier about uh, if you don't tithe, you're not going to heaven. That to me, that is a false teaching because it, it simply baseline it takes glory away from Jesus. It says, I'm not just saved by believing in Christ, I'm not just saved by faith, I'm saved by my own works, by what I can do. Well, it, even if it's a good thing, it, say if it's not tithing, let's say water baptism. Well, I'm saved not just by believing in Christ, but I must be water baptized too. I must have some type of work to follow my faith. And it is not the same as what the book of James says. The book of James says faith without works is dead. It's talking about the condition of our hearts. And it's talking about having like a repented lifestyle. The works that I'm talking about are religious works, like tithing, being water baptized, uh, uh, having a... Uh, uh, any type of religious sacrament as an obligation for your salvation, I think is unbiblical and it takes away glory from Jesus because it says, I need this plus Christ. And, and it, we, uh, as a way, as a Protestant Christian, the way that we see scripture is that we are saved by Christ alone through his grace. It's only by grace that we are saved. And in the, any, even all good things that we have ever think we could do, all righteousness is only credited to us. We can never earn our way to heaven. It's only by grace. I, I hope that's clear. So the, number two is if it is all about you and your comfortability in the world, 
it, it is showing that what the world desires, such as fame, money, selfish desire, is most likely not the Holy Spirit. I'll have, uh, I've heard so many times where people will be holding on to a promise and saying, God, God promises, like prosperity gospel. Prosperity gospel says, God wants you to be blessed and blessed and blessed. And he wants you to have the best car. He wants you to have the best house. Favor is not fair. God, God only is going to, he's going to bless you monetarily in this world. And see, that is all what this world desires. To me, that that is not a, pro, a biblical teaching. Are, are there Christians who are financially blessed? Yes. Are there Christians who are also poor? Yes. There's homeless Christians. There's rich Christians. There's it, it doesn't really matter about our economic status. But to say that that is God's will for you to be prosper, prosperously blessed that is what the world teaches us fame and fortune is in fact jesus we could we could make a counter argument that jesus projects a, a lot the opposite says that the son of man has nowhere to lay his head that if you don't give uh give all your possessions to the poor and follow me that you know he he talks so much about not being attached to this world not being comfortable in this world but about storing up riches in heaven i mean in revelation he says to 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 you you who are rich sell your riches so that you may have uh, so that you may have riches in in eternity and again i'm not this is not a projection saying that you can't be rich and christian but to think that these are these are that we could just pull these promises like oh well abraham was blessed and so god has called me to be a child of abraham and be financially blessed too that's not what the bible is necessarily saying that's what our own hearts desire our fleshly hearts again i'm i'm talking about deciding whether something is a, a false teaching or a, a something biblical or not third god typically uses prophets to give correction to a people or to give guidance to people to give a mission to a person or a group he uses prophets to pronounce judgment or to foreshadow the future we don't often see prophets declaring prosperity blessings in scripture in fact, we look at the story of Jeremiah, and when all of the false prophets were saying that uh, the, the siege will pass, Israel will be blessed, and that we're going to have even more resources afterwards. And Jeremiah himself says, since the beginning of time, prophets have used, been used to, to, to um, declare doom and gloom unless the people repent. But here you are declaring prosperity. I hope that what you say comes true. Uh, it, it makes me think about a moment where I remember hearing this labeled prophet saying uh, praying over a, a, a person saying god's going to use you to do this and he's going to cause your music to be sung all over the world and you're going to be uh, uh, uh all, you're you're going to write your own songs and god's going to use you to reach the nations and it's just like this this very me-centric prayer and let me be clear it's, like, it's if it's one thing to have a me-centric prayer to have a nice prayer over you that there's nothing wrong with that but to say the moment that you say God says this, well, that, that puts it in another category. And to declare yourself a prophet and that you, you're declaring something over someone's life, I, I think that that is a, a shady area to be. It's a, and, you, uh, and we should look at the fruit. And we should look to see if it's biblical. Why am I talking about this? Because I've seen people like that who've had someone labeled as a prophet say this prophetic word over them. And then when it doesn't happen, they hold God accountable, saying God didn't fulfill his promise. God didn't answer my prayers. I'm mad at him now. And when at the end of the day is maybe you should have checked the prophetic word given to you in the first place to see if it was even aligned with scripture. You would have avoided being offended or even getting your hopes up for something that was just a nice idea or a pretty prayer rather than believing that God was making this ex 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 extreme promise to you. I, I want us to not be offended at God for things he didn't even do. Now, finally, people often, we often want a word from God through a prophet to give guidance, hope, or a promise of a renewed purpose. We, we put prophets, pastors, and preachers on a pedestal to communicate God to us. We, we all just really want God to tell us what to do. We, it will be so much nicer 
if we didn't have to walk by faith, but we would just know what we're supposed to do, what our purpose is, and we'll just do it. You told us what to do, so I'll just do that. And it takes faith out of the equation. And we often, we, 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 we try to rely on the middleman, the idea of a middleman, of a prophet, a pastor, a preacher, because it takes the responsibility off of us. And because of that, we have followed certain ministers and certain people blindly because they have led us along with these promises and these, these false hopes and these, this false guidance that if we just do what they say, then, then we don't have to worry about anything else. I don't know how many time I've, I've, times I've heard people give generously out themselves into poverty. That they 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 continue to give and saying the preacher is saying, uh, God is uh, is telling you to give that hundred dollars right now. You you don't even know how you're gonna make your your rent payment, and you need to just give what you do have to God and invest in His economy instead. Well, that's that's a great faith to have. But the Bible also says, don't give under compulsion. Paul tells the church of Corinth, don't make such a great donation that we have to pick up an offering for you. So see, we see that it's not biblical, but we will, we've blindly followed people who've led us along where it has tickled our ears and, and has led us into a place where at first, like, oh, this is much easier to follow than finding God on my own. This guy will tell me, and it has led us into a severe place of church hurt, of manipulation, into where we're even uh, offended at God. So many people are mad at God for something a man did and promised them. Not something that God promised them, but something a man promised them. Now let's go into the, our next point, which is I don't know yet. He's talking about like, let me check that. Let me check in scripture. Let me check in the Bible. Now let's talk about I don't know yet. Learning requires humility and taking ownership. Humility and taking ownership. Look at this verse in the book of Acts, chapter 8, verse 30 through 31. This is the story of the eunuch. It says, Philip ran over and he heard the man reading from the prophet Isaiah. Philip asked, do you understand what you are reading? And the man replied, how can I unless someone instructs me? And he urged Philip to come in, up into the carriage and sit with him. So we see this man, the eunuch, is searching for God on his own. He is looking for God. And as he is reading scripture... There's part where he simply doesn't understand. He, he's running into these roadblocks. And uh, this Philip offers himself to help guide and teach him. What I'm saying is, uh, all that I just said about how we need to know the Bible ourselves, we also still need chief teachers. We still need pastors. We need them as guys in our lives. They, they spend their lives, they devote their lives to be able to interpret scripture and to, uh, and to be able to help give guidance of what it says. We still need to know it for ourselves, but we still need teachers to help guide us through it. There's oftentimes where we can read something and we think it means one thing, and you could, but then you bring it to someone that's well versed in scripture. Say, I read this, and I and I thought it was saying this, and they can tell you like, oh, it, well, that that is a great insight, but it's actually talking about this group of people. It's actually talking about this or that, and it, a teacher can help refine your knowledge, refine in your guidance, and it requires humility and taking ownership. See, the best teachers don't tell you what to think; they teach you how to think. Think about when you were in grade school and when you had those really good teachers that taught you how to do the math problem. They didn't just tell you what the answer was. They taught you how to achieve the answer. Those are the best teachers. And that is what it's like. We need them like that. It's where they help guide us in the right way. And it takes humility of being willing to, to be teachable. And also it takes an ownership to do the work we need to do. You still have to do the work in finding and searching and asking. And so to help guide you in your own path of trying to understand scripture, trying to understand doctrine specifically, I want to, I want to just briefly explain the idea of hermeneutics. There's eight laws of hermeneutics. Hermeneutics is simply a, a very common, widely accepted practice in, uh, in which is commonly used to interpret scripture. There's eight different rules of hermeneutics that we're going to go through real quick. The first is the rule of definition. Uh, now, uh, uh, let me be clear. In saying this, 
I'm not saying that you have to do this for every single passage in order to have a, a proper reading time. No, I'm talking about going deeper in your faith, deeper in wanting to understand why you believe certain things. Why do you believe in water baptism? Why do you believe in uh, in this or that? Those are important beliefs of your faith. That's what hermeneutics is for. You, reading scripture for your uh, just as a daily practice is you don't have to go through all of these every single time. I want to make that clear. So rule number one, definition. What does the word mean? It's a, it's the simple understanding of defining the word so that you don't confuse it with a different definition. I have a lot of people that they feel like they have to go into the Hebrew root of the word. Like, well, let me find the Hebrew word of what this was supposed to mean. And they look at all the options and try to define it themselves. I would project to you, especially if you're just now starting to read the Bible, to trust the people that spent years of going to school and learning how to translate. I mean, that's a profession, to be a professional translator who, who learned the Hebrew text and the possible definitions to have a sense of trust of what the, they were led to define that Hebrew word and translate it to, rather than thinking that you were superior than them, that you should that you have a better interpretation of what the Hebrew word can mean. Can you find some supplemental knowledge in certain Hebrew words? Yeah, of course. But to think that you need to do it because it, it goes into like, well, I would find a more superior definition of this than the original translators. I think that's a silly concept. When it talks about definition here, let's we, we can accept the English definitions of these words and, and look at that as face value before going deeper. Now, the second is the rule of usage. This is the idea of, uh, of it, the, the rule of usage is that it must be remembered that the whole the Old Testament was written originally by, to, and for the Jews. The words and the idioms must have been uh, intelligible to them, just as the words of Christ when talking to them must have been. The majority of the New Testament, likewise, was written in, uh, uh, in milieu of the, the Greco-Roman and lesser extent, Jewish culture. And it is important not to not impose our modern usage into our interpretation. So it's pretty, what this is saying is looking at the usage of certain words and how they would use it in their culture and their, uh, their background at the time. How did they use it more, more than how would we use it? We, we need to look at how it was intended to be used. Now, next is the rule of context. Every word you read must be understood in light of the words that come before and after it. This is one of my favorites. I strongly believe that we that Christians should not be uh, we should not hold on to single verses to form our beliefs, but that we should have passages that build our faith, not single verses. Uh, a, a simple example of this, I think, would be Galatians two twenty. That verse is. I'm crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. When I was first taught that verse, it was hammered into me this legalistic ideology that I am saved by my works, that I have to crucify my flesh and, and strive to, to be perfect, to be as holy as I can be, to be accepted by God, that I have to kill and crucify every little fleshly thing that I have about myself so because it's no longer I but Christ who lives in me. Well, when you look at the full passage, the verses before and after that, Paul is actually saying quite the opposite. He's saying, I've realized that there's not any good work that I could possibly do to be made right by God. And so I crucify my good works to Christ because there's no longer anything I can do, but what Christ has done in me. It's all about grace, not about works. And we can only get that by reading the whole context. Next is, is historical background. This is the interpreter must have some awareness of the life and society of the times in which the scripture was written. The spiritual principle can be timeless, but often can prop, uh, can't be properly appreciated without some knowledge of the background. I think this is really big to understand when uh, to look at the history and some of the things that were written for for. Uh, a really big one is is like the the verse in which uh, in in Corinthians where Paul says a woman should have her head covered. 
and we could there's so there's denominations that form entire beliefs on that to where you you see those churches where everyone has the women have these very beautiful and pretty hats hats are great you can wear a hat if you want but to believe that you are out of god's will and in open spiritual rebellion if a woman does not wear a hat because of the scripture well that is not taking into the historical background of what that verse is in in the light of which that verse was written in the in the corinth church that was a major port for 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 ships and it was very common to have prostitutes all around these ports in fact the pagan form of worship was was uh, generally mixed with tons of orgies and prostitution all this sexual revelry was mixed in with this 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 location in this area and and it was connotated to the spiritual houses of pagan worship now do you know how these women were identified as how these women were identified being prostitutes they would have shaved heads now all the a bunch of people are being converted to christianity including some of these ex-prostitutes and paul is saying so that you are not identified by your by your past he's saying girl you you ain't no ho no mo <laughs> you wear a hat so you don't get confused for a prostitute He's telling them a very practical advice, and he's also trying to give a distinction for the Christian church to not be confused as another pagan orgy house. He, there's Imagine the people just thinking it's another place of pagan worship, seeing some women with their heads shaved and saying, hey, how much? And he's saying, let's avoid all that. Wear a covering. It, it, it's, a, it's a spiritual thing. He, that's what he's saying. See, we, we are able to get so much deeper by understanding the historical background now let's look at the rule of logic this is the the interpretation is merely logical reasoning having logical reasoning for what you're saying when interpreting scripture the use of reason is everywhere to be assumed nothing is written to be obscure to us is meant to be logically reasoned and so it, God is not illogical. He is logical. Does the in, you must ask, does this interpretation make sense or is it illogical? The Bible was given to us in the form of human language and therefore appeals to human reason and it invites investigation. Even Jesus, he would ask the disciples, when the disciples would ask him certain questions, he would say, how do you read the scriptures? Invoking that it was meant to be interpreted that there's some type of logic reasoning to have and i've found that there's a lot of christian messages that are illogical there's so many and and they just sound pretty just because it rhymes doesn't mean that it makes sense just because it rhymes doesn't mean that it's biblical we need to get away from that and just really get back to logical reasoning stop believing something that sounds crazy it, the Bible is a logical book. It was inspired by God, meant for us. Next is the rule of precedent. We must not violate the known usage of a word or passage and invent another for which there is no precedent. Just as a judge's chief occupation is the study of previous cases, so must the interpreter use precedent in order to determine whether they really support an alleged doctrine. What it's saying is, if I if I read something. And I form an idea about it, a, a, a doctrine even about it. It must makes it must be a, a precedent in the rest of Scripture. It's like the idea as being a New Testament believing Christian to say, "Well, God doesn't uh, God doesn't call us to tithe at all. He doesn't want us to tithe." Well, that would be making a new precedent because all throughout the scriptures we see this precedent of tithing it doesn't mean that we're we're saved by tithing but we see it as a as a meaningful practice that invoke that is an it shows our faith through our trust and so it, it that's precedent another example i would use is the idea that uh, of taking the verses in, in first second timothy where paul says uh, to timothy specifically uh, I he suggests don't let a woman have authority over a man. And we've formed an entire doctrines and belief systems that women cannot be leaders in the church. I think that's unbiblical because of precedent, because of precedent. We see all throughout scripture, women being empowered in the Bible with leadership. It, we see Paul 
in other parts of scripture, empowering women as leaders, as deaconesses. There's moments like in the book of Colossians where he thanks a woman for leading the church in her home. He doesn't thank anyone else. He only thanks her for leading the church in her home, which would imply that she's pastoring that church. There's no one else he thanks. There's, there's so many moments where Paul is affirming women in leadership. All throughout scripture, we see women affirmed in leadership. Look at Deborah. She's a great example in the Old Testament, in the book of Judges. She was both the judge and the prophet of the time. That is a secular leadership as well as uh, as well as the spiritual leadership. She was given both roles and she was honored. You you look at uh, the final example I'll use as, a, as this as precedent, us looking at precedent to understand something being biblical or not, is Mary Magdalene. She was the first person that Jesus revealed himself to resurrected. And what did he tell her? Go and tell the other disciples who were men the gospel message. What is the gospel message? That Jesus rose from the dead. She was the first person ever to be given authority by Jesus of the resurrection gospel message. And she was told to share that message with other men. She was the first preacher. She was the first evangelist of the New Testament with the resurrection message. Think of that. It, 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 he could have revealed himself to anybody, but he chose to reveal himself first to this woman. There is not precedent to, to, to take this scripture in Timothy and say women can't be in leadership. It's just not precedent. The next rule is unity. The parts of scripture being interpreted must be construed with the reference and the significance of the whole. An interpretation must be consistent with the rest of scripture. It's like the very thing that I'm talking about with precedent. I do not see that idea of women not being able to be in leadership. That is not in unity with the rest of the Bible. When you're forming deep doctrines and, and, and belief systems, it has to have unity with the rest of Scripture. That's why I urge you that you must take the Bible in as a whole rather than verse by verse. You will just confuse yourself and sell yourself short if you form an entire belief system just off verse by verse. And then finally, the rule of inference. Inference is is a fact reasonably implied from another fact. There's, there's, we can make inferential facts or propositions and that, that are sufficiently binding when their truth is established by competent and satisfactory evidence, meaning that we can infer things in scripture based off of the rest of scripture. Uh, I'll make a, a simple example. When I was uh, when I was in the process of giving my life to Christ, I would try to make the argument that marijuana was fine for me to smoke. Hey, I'm not making any type of uh, 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 of doctrine about whether weed is sin or not. But I, I try to make an inference. Well, it never talks about smoking weed in the Bible, and so that was my out. But I, what we can do is taking Scripture as a whole, we can infer. The same things that are spoken about alcohol in scripture can be inferred about smoking marijuana. In the books of Proverbs where it says, where it talks about even being a, a, about drunkenness and how drunkenness is sinful. Well, we can infer that about marijuana when I was just a pothead and I was trying to excuse myself saying, well, pot's not in the Bible, so it's okay. I can infer the same thing to be applied. So these are the eight laws of hermeneutics. And I want us to understand that Again, this is a guide to help you in interpreting scripture. L let me let me just give three quick ideas of if you're if you're trying to read the Bible for the first time, let me give you three things that will help you. The first is you need to get a good translation. Get a good translation. The first translation I ever read was the Old King James Version, and God help me, I'm, I, I read it and I did not even know there were other translations. The second that I ever read was the New Living Translation, the NLT. Man, I was blown away. I was like, this is so much easier. The competency level was so much more tangible. I, I urge you to get a translation that is easily un understandable for you. There's some people I've heard that, that were like, I like the Old King James because it sounds pretty. I like how poetic it sounds as I read it. Well, it means nothing if you can't understand it. You're exchanging understanding and knowledge for vanity. 
So get a translation that works for you, that is under, understandable for you. Next, get on a reading plan to help you be able to, to just uh, take this book and eat one bite at a time. It, it, to think, oh, how am I going to read the entire Bible? Don't burn yourself out. Just try, why don't you start by just joining a one-year reading plan? We do one with our church. You can join. It's just a, a reading a reading plan that takes less than five minutes a day. By the end of the year, we read through the entire Bible. It's great. Now, uh, uh, and finally, I, I would just encourage you. We uh, encourage you to just be allow yourself to be teachable. Allow yourself to to take ownership of of reading the Bible yourself, but also be teachable and and, and willing to accept direction and guidance from from someone that knows it more than you. There's been plenty of times where I, I've read I've read the Bible uh, countless times over the years, and so many times I, I, I I've just studied. It's my lifeblood to study Scripture. It's my job occupation, and then I would I would be able to inspire someone to start reading Scripture, and they barely started reading it, to haven't even read the whole thing, and would start coming to me like, well, I don't think you did this right because the Scripture says this. I'm like, well, you should read the whole thing first before accusing me. Before being before being critical of others, you should read the whole yourself. It, it, just let yourself be teachable and humble as you go through it. Don't be a critical eye at everybody else. Allow yourself to be teachable. Now, I want to I want to say one last thing, and we're done. Okay, one last thing, and that is, I want to know more. Never be satisfied with what you know. One the. The most memorized and well-known verse in the entire Bible is John 3.16. And it says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only son so that everyone who believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. See, this verse, is, it's so inspiring. It's so simple. It's like it encompasses, it's one of the verses that encompass almost like all of our faith. It's like, oh, you can just say all oh, right there. It's such a beautiful verse. And it is so is so saturated with revelation that single verse is a great amazing verse that dialogue happened only because of a pharisee named nicodemus asked a question from jesus he was curious and teachable he wanted to know more he was a pharisee meaning that he was a well-versed teacher of the people he was a teacher of scripture and yet he was willing to he wanted to know more and he was willing to humble himself and ask a question to ask what uh, a question of jesus and because of that dialogue we have one of the greatest pieces of scripture right here for me personally i feel like even for my own faith i started reading the Bible out of curiosity. I just simply wanted to know more about God. And that simple curiosity of wanting to know what the Bible said took me on this life-changing journey to where now I'm a church planter. My whole life is unrecognizable to who I once was. My life was in darkness and death before, and now my life is full of light. I have, I've been brought from death to life. And that path, happen because of being curious of be, of wanting to know more and i'd really urge you to to simply maybe just start reading the bible with that simple desire i want to know god more you don't have to know everything you just have that simple desire i want to know god more and maybe that's you here right now you're listening to this you're a part of this group and you're just thinking i want to know god more i want to know jesus more and maybe there's something within you that has that 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 urge, that 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 desire, and maybe you've never had a moment or a day where you've made a clear decision to put your trust in Jesus. The Bible says in the book of Romans, that if you believe in your heart and confess it with your mouth that Jesus is who he says he is, surely you shall be saved. What it's saying is if you have a genuine heart and talk to Jesus yourself, acknowledge who he is, the son of God who died on the cross and rose from the dead. That's all it takes to start this journey with him, this relationship with him. I urge you, don't let another day go by. Have that conversation. As soon as we get off today, as soon as we get off of this group, have that conversation with Jesus. You don't need me to lead you through a pretty prayer. You can have that conversation yourself. 
With that being said, we're going to close out. I'm so grateful for you guys being a part of this online group today. I hope that it was meaningful for you. I hope it was edifying to your faith. And if, if Grave Top has made an impact in your life, and you want to help us to make an impact in others, you can do that by being uh, by by giving. Again, like we never want anyone to feel pressured or persuaded to give when they don't want to. Giving is an act of generosity. It's an act of worship between you and God. We're simply stewards of that gift. But when you do give through Grape Top Church, you help extend the impact we've made in your life, and you help us make that impact in someone else's life. You help us to, to really make a difference. You become a part of bringing people from death to life. And so if you have it on your heart to give today, you can all you have to do is go to gravetopchurch.com, click the donate tab, and you're able to give online. Or you're able to give through our church sensor app. If you have the app downloaded, all, uh, uh, all you have to do is click the giving up, the donate tab. Or if you want to download the app today, just search Church Center in your app store and then search Grave Top Church and you'll find us. With all that being said, I'm so grateful for you guys being a part of our online community. I hope that this was a great day for you, great message. I hope it made a difference in your life. And you must know that you're always welcome to be a part of our in-person gatherings. Right now for the months of January, February, and March, we're trading off and meeting in each other's homes for church. We are learning how to be more intimate and deep in our community. But we want you to know you're always welcome to be a part. Find the next times and locations. All you have to do is visit gravetopchurch.com and click the time and location tabs. We love you, church family. I hope you have a great rest of your evening. Bye. Hey, I hope that you enjoyed today's message. If you did, there's several different ways to connect. First is by subscribing to our show, leaving a review or a comment. Second is by going to gravetopchurch.com and clicking the Get Connected tab so that we can connect with you as an individual. And third is if this ministry has made an impact in your life and you want to help us to continue to reach others, then you can give online by clicking the Give tab. Until next time, thank you for being a part of Grave Top Church.